Good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. If it's your first time or first time in a long time, I don't know about you, but the first time I got back eye to eye with people, there was something, it just did a lot of good for the soul. And so thank you for being here. Um, we will get to the, the sermon in this series in a minute. If, if you haven't been here, we've been going through a series called Squirrels, if you can't tell, because we've all got squirrels that distract us from who God made us to be and who God truly is. But before we get to that, I want to share some news with you. We got word on Wednesday that a man who has been a longtime pastor in this community and in Denver uh, to so many uh, passed away. Bob McPherson died at the age of 94 on Tuesday. And he had uh, come alongside this church uh, many, many years ago and had come alongside various people within this church as well. And there was a time period where you could walk through the doors and be greeted by Bob McPherson. And if you didn't know your name, he, uh, because of his age, he got away with this. He'd say, hey, Captain America, hey, Miss America. And you just felt, you felt like those things. And so I want to read to you a letter that we've written as a church to his family. Uh, Dear McPherson family, we wish to extend to you our heartfelt condolences on the passing of your husband, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, Pastor Bob McPherson. Brother Bob was a friend, mentor, pastor, and example to all who were privileged to know him. We will greatly miss him. Please know that you are in our thoughts and prayers during this difficult time. He was integral in the founding of our church. Brother Bob was a beloved and iconic leader and member of our church family for many, many years. Bob and his amazing family have many friends among our active church family whose lives and faith were shaped by his extraordinary gifts and passion for Christ. Please know that we are here for you in Christ's love, West Bowles Community Church. So he was known to many as pastor. Around here, he was known as brother. And uh, I got to experience the brother side of him. Uh, let me show you a picture. This was uh, last week with my boyish, young, good looks. Uh, no, I think I was about 17 when that picture was taken. And uh, the first two times I ever got to speak to the congregation, they were like one-minute devotionals. And the first time that I got up and gave a devotional, he put somebody with me to just kind of like go through the technicals and delivery and stuff like that. The second time that I got up, it was with Bob. And Bob made me come in and practice. We were in the chapel next door. And I got about 30 seconds into what I prepared. And he, no joke, reaches down, pulls back and throws a shoe at me. Like I'm on the stage and he throws a shoe at me. And he stood back and he went, Got to be ready for anything. <laughs> and now I look back and I realize it might have been my first preaching lesson that I ever received. And so he will be missed. And so with all that said, will you join me in a prayer as we open God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to gather. Thank you for sustaining us, both individually and as a body uh, in you. And we ask that this morning, as we come before you, first we are, we are grateful for the lives of people like Dan and Annette Rodriguez as they move to California. We're grateful for a life uh, that, we get to look, that we get to see you through in Bob McPherson. And uh, we ask that as you so faithfully do, remind us of the constancy and the assurance and the life that is found in your word and your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. Well, a few weeks ago, I stood up here and I talked to you about somebody that's part of our family, Max. Max is our dog. There he is right there. And uh, as you can tell, even from the up clip, is it, isn't it true every dog, every single dog bolts at the sight of a squirrel? How many of you have dogs? How many of you have dogs that have chased squirrels? All right, I've seen some dogs like smaller than squirrels that still go after them and those are usually more ferocious. But the thing I was thinking about with Max is that he has never caught a squirrel. I mean, hundreds of times he has bolted across the yard and here's what happens when he bolts. When Max bolts, usually what happens is he, he chases after something he's never caught and, and then I realize he just, he damages everything between him and the squirrel. I, I mean, Kara's planter in the backyard. My wife has a couple planters in the backyard. They get dug up. And it just happened last week. He, he just dug holes in it because he thinks he's going to find a squirrel in there. And he's lucky it's September. If it was spring, uh, I'm pretty sure Kara would have done away with him. But he just damages. It doesn't matter if it's property. It doesn't matter if it's uh, small children and people in the way. Um, he'll go through you. He does not go around you. That's not, it's not on his radar. He just goes through. It's linebacker, okay? But the other thing that happens is Max, Max loses all capacity to see what's right in front of him. Recently, he went after a, a squirrel, and he had a bowl of food, right? I had just set his bowl of food out, but squirrel, is, there's no competition. And, and also recently, one of our children had actually left a plate full of food at mouth level. Max was right there, and he sees a squirrel, and he goes for it. And now, Max... He has an excuse, right? Because he's a dog. He doesn't get it. But as I thought about Max, you know what I realized? That's you and that's me. See, we have something in us. We have a squirrel that will cause us to chase after squirrels. And it's, it's really the next squirrel that we're talking about in this series that can so distract us, that can so cause us to not even realize what we're chasing after, the damage we're doing, or what is right in front of us. And it is the squirrel of pride. Pride will cause us to chase after things we can't catch. It will cause us to damage everything in the way. And it will cause us to completely overlook and miss what is right in front of us. And if there's any group, when you open scripture, if there is any group, I mean, pride is, is constant throughout scripture. You see it. It's part of the human condition. But if there's any group that Jesus comes up against pride so sharply in, it is this group that was constantly out to get them, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, as you think about his interactions with the Pharisees, they were chasing after things that they'd never catch. They were doing damage along the way, and they were completely overlooking what was right in front of them. In Matthew chapter 23, it, there's a passage that I still have yet to hear a sermon on, and maybe for good reason, because it is so uncomfortable. But Jesus comes, comes across a group of Pharisees. He's, he's in the last week of his life, and he's talking to them, and he, what he does is he pronounces seven woes upon them. He says, woe to you. Now, we read the word woe, and we think anger, but it, it's actually closer to this idea of a heartbreak. He's looking at their lives, and he's saying, woe to you, because you're so concerned, he uses this imagery of cleaning the outside of the dish, but the inside remains filthy. Or you're like whitewashed tombs that on the outside look beautiful and they look so well done and so much time has been spent on them. But inside, they're full of dead men's bones. And as you're reading Matthew 23, you think, wow, I, I feel like 
Jesus, I feel like I came across the first group of people that you might have actually hated. But it wasn't. It wasn't out of anger or hate. It was out of heartbreak. And then you get to Acts chapter 9, another Pharisee. In fact, in his letters, he refers to himself as the Pharisee of Pharisees, the apostle Paul, who before he was Paul, he was Saul. And one day, Saul, he is on his way to Damascus. Saul had been breathing out murderous threats, we learn in the book of Acts. He'd been breathing out murderous threats toward those who had followed Jesus because Paul wanted to stamp, Saul wanted to stamp out this movement that was following Jesus. And so he decided he was gonna start rounding up followers of Jesus, putting them in jail, persecuting them. And he decided where he was wasn't enough. So he looked around, he went, Damascus. I'm gonna go to Damascus and I'm gonna start rounding them up there. And on the way, what happens? Jesus deals with Saul. And what Jesus is really dealing with in Saul is this pride, this pride that has completely overlooked, completely overlooked the damage he was doing. See, in Matthew 23, it's Pharisees chasing after all the external stuff when you look at the woes that, that Jesus pronounced. He's saying, you're so worried about the outside that you've neglected the inside. You're chasing after something you can't catch. But when he's dealing with Saul, he's dealing with the damage that Saul has been doing. He says, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And Saul, in all his pride, this would have been news to him because Saul had to be thinking, I thought I was doing God's work. I thought I was doing what God wanted. And Jesus says, no, 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 you are persecuting. You are damaging things. Luke chapter nine, Jesus is walking with his disciples one day. And this time, they don't come across a group of disciples. Instead, what you see is within the disciples, there's this thinking that is like that of the Pharisees. They come across this Samaritan town. In this town, uh, the, people, the people make clear very quickly that they're not real open to having Jesus there. And they're not real open to anything he has to say to them. And so James and John, who have been following Jesus for a period of time, You know, you and I think if we could actually like physically walk next to Jesus, we'd just be thinking love all day long. James and John see this town reject Jesus. And you know what their first question is? Should we, you want us to call down fire, Jesus? Should we just obliterate them, just dominate them? And Jesus looks at them, shakes his head, and it says he rebukes them. But see, when you and I read about Jesus pronouncing woes or knocking Saul to the ground, or, or rebuking his disciples. It, it tends to put an image of an angry, angry God in our minds, doesn't it? And yet when you go back and when you look at the, the original language, these words are much closer to compassion, to a broken heart for the Pharisees, for the disciples as they thought this way, much more than anger. But he had to come against it sharply. He had to come against it sharply because the pride was so thick. And Jesus knew what was at stake for them and for you and I. That when we allow pride to to allow us to chase after things that we'll never catch and do damage to everything along the way and overlook what's right in front of us, it kind of reminds me of Max. Pride causes us to settle for rodents. Last week, we had some guests over and uh, we're sitting outside eating dinner and Max 
he jumps off the porch and he immediately heads to the back planter. And just, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes? Is that about how long it was? Uh, eight hours. Anyway, he could do that for eight hours. He's just circling this planter because something is back there. And so this is going on. I go inside, I come back out, and one of our guests is curled up in a ball in her chair. And uh, all I heard her say was, I, I heard him crunch. And Max had caught something. And it was no squirrel. And it was no bunny. When I finally walked over to see what it was, no joke, it was a rat. That's the body. The tail was I, probably out here. It was the size of a lion. Anyway, uh, and I just thought, that is disgusting. And then he's trying to lick us later. And I was like, no, go. Just stay out there forever. But this is what pride causes us to do. Again, he's a dog But pride will cause you and I to chase after things that we can't catch, to do damage along the way, and to overlook what's right in front of us. He had access to food. I mean, there was plenty on the table. And yet, he's focused on a rodent. And that's what he ended up with. And so the question comes up, what do we do about pride? What do you and I do about pride when we can't even recognize it when when it's driving us? And the answer is, nothing. You can't do anything about your pride. God has to deal with it. And that's why for a few minutes, I want us to spend some time looking at Jesus' interaction and relationship with another Pharisee. And it's a story of a Pharisee that he, he, didn't, he didn't have to go through necessarily, excuse me, the woes and the getting knocked to the ground and just the, the overlooking of what he had in front of him. See, Jesus dealt with the pride in this Pharisee a different way. And it's a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And he first shows up in John chapter 3, just prior to the famous John 3.16 verse that we've all seen held up at football games and everywhere else. But Nicodemus shows up in John chapter 3. And I want, I want us to just dive in and look at his first interaction with Jesus because it is such a picture of how he deals with our pride in us when we're willing to surrender and bring it before him. Listen to this. John chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And again, can you you hear it there? Nicodemus is focused where? On the external things. That's all he could see, and it was just part of his thinking. He sees the outside. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And you can imagine Nicodemus is thinking externally, like that's weird. And Jesus is referring to what? The inside. No one, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus replies, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. To which Jesus replied, gross, Nicodemus. No, he didn't reply that. Verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. In other words, internally, there's internal work that happens. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And a couple of verses later, Nicodemus asks this question that would have been 
just so uncomfortable for a Pharisee because Pharisees were known for knowing it all. And they've got everything up here and they have all the answers. In verse nine, he says, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. Verse 10, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Now, the conversation continues, but what's so interesting to me here is that Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, who has all the answers, he shows up at night. This is Nick at night, okay? He shows up at night and he says, Jesus, I truly want to know. I truly want to know. And that would have been hard for him in the daytime. To, to see one of his peers asking, see him, seeing him asking for answers, that, that would have maybe lowered Nicodemus in their eyes a little bit. So he shows up to Jesus at night. And what does Jesus do? I, I think Jesus does with Nicodemus the exact same thing he does and he uses as a starting place for you and I. He completely disorients Nicodemus. Because there is something about Nicodemus, his, his, whether it's a mental model or his thinking or his wiring or the way he just thinks, that thinks it's all about the outside. And Jesus has to say, no, no, no. Everything outside pales in comparison to the work that needs to be done in here. And so the first way that God deals with our pride is he has to disorient us. Now, here's what I love. This is not the last time you see Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up again in John chapter seven, but you have to understand that between John chapter three and John chapter seven, as you read about the different feasts that took place in John four and five and six, you can begin to put together a timeline. And it could have been anywhere from a year and a half to two and a half years later that Nicodemus shows up again in scripture. And they may have interacted between, I don't know. But when he shows up in John chapter seven, what you discover is that God has been up to something. Jesus was perfectly content to let Nicodemus walk away confused. And I sit there and I think, could I do that? Am I content to let people walk away confused? Because Jesus knew that God was gonna deal with the pride in the background of pride, not just with the Pharisees, but specifically in Nicodemus. And so he shows up a year and a half to two and a half years later. I mean, can you imagine? We don't even like to go an hour without having our questions answered. We don't even like to go a day being disoriented. A year and a half to two and a half years later, Jesus is at this festival. He's been teaching, the Pharisees are watching and they're just getting fired up. They don't like what they're hearing. They don't like that he's calling them out. And in John chapter seven says, finally, the temple guards who had been sent to arrest Jesus, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? In other words, we sent you to arrest him and now he's not with you. One job, you had one job, arrest Jesus. And listen to their reply. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. No one ever spoke the way this man does. Have you ever been so captivated that you just lose sight of what you were doing? I remember one of the disagreements Kara and I had years ago. My job, I had one job, get Lainey to school on time, to elementary school on time. Okay, so she's waiting on me. She's sitting on the couch. This is Lainey, she's watching Tinkerbell on Netflix. And I come down and I'm putting my shoes on. 
And I was like, what are you watching? She's like, it's Tinkerbell. And no joke, 15 minutes later, I am just captivated by Tinkerbell. It's a good movie. You guys need to check it out if you haven't seen it yet, okay? Very captivating. But this is what's just happened to these guards who were sent to arrest Jesus. In the response of the chief priests and the Pharisees, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob, and pay attention to their word, this mob that knows nothing, that is this mob that we have the answers and they don't, they're disoriented. This mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Enter Nicodemus. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And what you see here, you see here is that God has been doing some work in Nicodemus's heart. This once disoriented Nicodemus is now at a place where he is lowering his defenses. All those around him, the Pharisees, their, their defenses are high because what does pride do? Causes us to get defensive, doesn't it? Yeah, we put up walls. We don't realize the damage we're doing. And Nicodemus, he holds up the mirror and he says, is it possible? Is it possible that our ways aren't the way? That maybe there's a better way, guys? And it's evidence that God has been working in Nicodemus's heart. And this is how God will work in our hearts if we're willing to come before him, even with our pride. He disorients us and then he lowers our defenses. But this is not the last time you see Nicodemus in scripture. In fact, the third time may be the most powerful time that you see him in scripture. It's in John chapter 19. And really so much has happened by John 19. Jesus has been arrested. He's been put through an illegal trial that took place at night. He's been sentenced to be crucified. He's carried the cross. He's been nailed to the cross and he has breathed his last breath. And it's there at the cross that we see Nicodemus again. Here's what we learn from John. Later, later that day, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. There's a theme here. It just keeps happening. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Now, pay attention to this. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. Normally, when somebody was crucified in that day and age, their body was just discarded. I mean, there was no care for the body or anything like that. They just, it was just discarded. You know who got this kind of treatment? The myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds of it. You know whose bodies got that kind of treatment when they died? Kings. Kings got that kind of treatment. And for Nicodemus, the one who had once been disoriented by God and then had his defenses lowered by God, we now see God has continued to work in his heart. And this time, most fully, most visibly. 
This is the work of a God who not only disorients, who lowers our defenses, but who is completely devoted to us. And if you ever need a reminder, if Nicodemus ever needed a reminder, right there, at the cross. He'll disorient us, he'll lower our defenses, but if you wanna know the extent of his devotion, to saving you and I, to making us right with our heavenly father, it culminates right there at the cross. And that's where Nicodemus got it. And he went from, oh, you're a teacher. Oh, you're a man in John three. It's, oh, you're a teacher in, in John seven. This man in John 19, he couldn't use words. Instead with his actions, he said, you are king. You are Lord you are savior. So you wanna know how God deals with our pride? He might have to disorient us. I mean, 2020, he might have to disorient us. He might have to lower our defenses a little bit, but he always, always brings us back to his devotion to us. And here's why, because he knows, he knows that pride could cause us to settle for rodents when we could stay at the table of the king. Jesus doesn't want anybody settling for rodents when they've got a seat at the table of the king. As the worship team begins making their way back, one story, this comes out of the second century. There was an astronomer and geographer and mathematician by the name of Ptolemy. And Ptolemy ended up building what is considered one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. It's called the, uh, the Pharos of Alexandria. It's a lighthouse. And it, for, for centuries, it was one of the tallest buildings that ever existed. But as Ptolemy had this commission to be built, he, he commissioned a man named Sostratus to build this lighthouse. And Ptolemy's instructions to him were, I want you to etch my name into, I want you to put my name on this lighthouse. Now, Sostratus, as he's building this thing, he, he goes, you know what? Ptolemy shouldn't get the credit for this. And so what Sostratus did is he etched his own name into the stone, and then in front of that etching, he put plaster, and he painted the name Ptolemy on there. Well, obviously, this is a lighthouse. And so throughout Ptolemy's life, every time he looked at this lighthouse, he saw his name, one of these ancient wonders of the world. But you know what happened over time? It's the same thing God does over time. The storms of the sea began to hit the lighthouse and the elements began to affect it and that plaster chipped away until only one name was etched in stone. Could you imagine that at the end of your life, when people look at your life, they see not your name, but they see one name etched into your life, that of Jesus? And all you have to do is the same thing Nicodemus did and the same thing that this lighthouse did. You stay. You just stay in his presence. You get up every single day and whether it's a chapter of the Bible or it's one verse or it's a heartfelt sigh to him, you say, I'm here. Deal with me so that pride will not carry me off chasing things I'll never catch, doing damage I'm not aware of and overlooking what's right in front of me, the cross. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you. Thank you that you are a God that over and over and over, you could deal with us the way you did the Pharisees. 
in what appears to be sharp, sharp language and rebuke, or instead, what you long to do is handle us the same way you handled Nicodemus. And so give us your measure of patience. Give us your measure of patience to just stay in your presence. And some days that may mean filled with you, you know, and we can see it on the the schedule. And other days it may just be a heart position toward you in the midst of the storms. But right, etch on our hearts and in our lives, the name of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.